All right, good morning. How are we? Good. Great to be with you. Great to be back. Um, you know, I learned a couple of things on this trip. I was talking about captive life. I learned that despite its best attempts, an air mattress can't steal your joy. Yeah, that's good. Um, I learned the power of relationships. Uh, I learned as I watched kiddos come together. Uh, you know, in our, our student ministry, uh, we've got middle schoolers, we've got high schoolers, they all come together, and it's amazing to watch the old ones pour into the young, and the young look up to the old ones, but at the same time, watching them come together and befriend one another is a really, really powerful thing. You know what I, I learned about the um, meaning of sacrifice? I watched uh, a lot of people who took time off of work to go all the way to Memphis, to ride in a bus all the way to Memphis with noisy teenagers, to serve them all week with nothing but smiles on their face. I learned that God is working everywhere. Um, you know, I flew on Wednesday afternoon, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to go through, the, through everything that they had to go through. Uh, but I flew on Wednesday afternoon, and you know, we flying out of Colleen, we get up in the air, we've got a land, we've got a deep plane, and I am so frustrated. You know, the Lord did not gift me with patience. It's fine, we're working through it. Um, but then we get back on that plane and the people that I was sitting with were no longer the same people that I was sitting with. For whatever reason, it changed us up. And anyway, we get on this plane and there's this lady sitting next to me who had just had a cancer diagnosis and she lives in Salado and is in need of a church home. And so you see the fact that God's working everywhere. Uh, you see the fact that when you live a captive life, that God brings people into your life and you'd never know it just to encourage you. Um, but on my next flight, I didn't think I was going to make it because of the delay. So I'm running through DFW. On my way, I look to my right. There's another guy running to the same flight. Turns out he's working in the oil field in my hometown. Yep, he just started there. He needed some friends and needed a church home. Hey, let me tell you about a great church. I get on a plane sit next to a, a sweet lady. We talked for two and a half hours as we're, as we're flying to, to, to Memphis. Come to find out she's a member of the church that we're going to serve. Ha! How crazy is that? Listen, I tell you, when you live a captive life to Christ and your eyes are focused on him and not on our circumstances, it's amazing what God will do. It's amazing what God will do in your life. It's amazing what he continues to do in my life as I imperfectly attempt to live out this thing we keep talking about, this captive life. It's amazing what God does. So we're gonna continue that series, A Captive Life, as we look at Colossians chapter two, verses eight through 15. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me there. And if you're willing and able, I'd invite you to stand for the honor of the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter two. Verses 8 through 15, this is the word of the Lord. Remember, this is Paul talking, speaking to Christians. He says, see to it that no one, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to tr human tradition, according to elementary, elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. So that's Paul's main idea that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And then he gives us the reason why. Why do we live a captive life? Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. 
In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So you've heard the phrase Christmas in July. I'm going to speak about Christmas in June, which by the way, it's going to be 99 today. I know. See, you're welcome. I'm trying to get your mind. I'm focusing your mind on positive, hopeful things, okay? So Christmas season, I always have a a fun tradition. I, I like watching the movie Home Alone. Anybody watch the movie Home Alone? Even as an adult, man, I can watch that thing and I can belly laugh. You know what I mean by belly laugh? That's that deep, uncontrollable, tears rolling laugh. Well, it's the story of, of this family. They're going on a Christmas vacation. They've got their youngest son, Kevin, who gets a little bit tired of uh, being the youngest, having all the rules. He wants freedom. And so he ends up making this wish. Well, if, gosh, if I, could just, if I could just get out of this family. Well, the next day, his, his wish kind of comes true, right? They're heading out on vacation. Their alarm clocks go off. Nobody's ready. They've got to make it to the airport. So all of them rush up. Their craziness in the house. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And they run out, get in these vans, and they speed off to the airport, hoping that they got everybody. They get on the plane. And there's this moment where mama realizes, oh, no. And she does that, Kevin. You know what I'm talking about? Because she realizes we left Kevin. Now, as the story progresses, it's kind of a fun story as Kevin's at home by himself. He eats what he wants to eat. He goes to bed when he wants to go to bed. He's got complete and total freedom. Finally, he's got it. (laughs) Only a couple days into it, he realizes, well, man, this is not what it's all cracked up to be. And there's two particular robbers who um, are canvassing neighborhoods. They realize, oh, wow, this house is vacant, or so they think. So they begin to set their gaze on this particular house, not knowing that Kevin's there. So they try to rob the house. Kevin plays all these funny pranks on these guys, and, and it switches from them trying to rob the house to try to kidnap Kevin. And the point that I want you to see this morning, the reason why I bring that up, is because there is in the world a philosophy, a worldview, there is uh, working through the enemy, there's, there's this power that's working on this earth to try to captivate your mind, your heart, and your attention. The word that Paul uses, it, it comes from the idea of being kidnapped, right? It's this idea that this worldview is attempting to kidnap you and hold you hostage away from Christ and his way. Now, when we're talking about being physically kidnapped, we're, obviously we're talking about being spiritually captured by our enemy who the Bible says is like a lion roaring around seeking someone to devour. This is why Paul says, see to it. He says, watch yourself, watch your life. Make sure that you are not being duped by some new age philosophy 
old-fashioned tradition or some progressive idea believing that somehow, some way, it's gonna save you, that you can earn God's favor if I just do all the right things, this idea that, that, that the world can offer me the good life, this dream life, the happy life, but rather what, what Paul is saying here is rather than following all of those things which are empty, that are deceitful, he says, no, 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 we need to keep our minds captive to Christ captive to him. By the way, there's a great book. I don't know, maybe some of you have probably read this book, but C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. Anybody read that? Yeah, it's a great book. I'd recommend any, any and everybody read this book. It's, it's a really, really neat book. Jordan and I just read it um, coming home from, from Kansas City, our last time going from, from school. I mean, it's a great book. It tells this kind of kind of this iron, ironic story of, of a guy named Screwtape who is kind of the lead demon, so to speak. And then he's got Wormwood, who's his understudy. And so what he's doing in the story is he's, he's he, Screwtape is teaching Wormwood how to tempt and how to capture the hearts and the minds of Christians, right? How to trick them into following him rather than following Christ. And, and here's the, the kind of the strange thing about the book is it's, you know, it's, it's not that he's trying to trick us with things that you might think, but rather here's some of the things that he tries to trick us into believing. It's the ideas like, like freedom from authority. If you can just teach them that there's freedom outside of authority, then, then they'll experience true freedom. He tries to trick them into the love of money, the love of sex and power, the belief that one doesn't need to go to church, but rather you can, you can live the Christian life on your own. Oh, just get them, get them segregated. He tempts them to see rules as a way to gain favor before God, to see the worst in people and to be overly critical of good and godly things that maybe we don't agree with, that don't fit our preferences. The whole point that, that Screwtape is trying to, to feed into Wormwood is this idea of dissension, of trying to get them uh, confused, to, to breed division in families, churches, and institutions by God. And I think that in a very similar way, Paul's desire is that we would put an end to this, this, this thing, this, this, this stuff that the enemy is trying to pervade, pervade in our hearts and minds. And so he's saying, hey, no, 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 see to it. Make sure in your life, take a close look at your life and make sure that nobody, including yourself, by the way, is leading you astray by empty philosophies and, and empty deceit. Um, and so he calls us again to live captive to Christ alone. Now, the word captive is kind of interesting because I think sometimes we focus on the, uh, maybe the negative side of, captive, of, of being captive, right? We, we think of being enslaved, well, if you're captive, you're enslaved, which means you're confined. But, but there's also a really positive side of what it means to be captive as well. See, to be captive also means that we are attentive to or we're fascinated by. And so again, what I think Paul is saying here is to be held captive is certainly to be enslaved by, to be confined to, but also it's to be attentive to and to be fascinated by Christ above any and all things. And so I would question you this morning, what is it that fascinates you? What is it that grabs your attention more than anything else? Because I can tell you, when I got on that plane, I was not um, probably in the best of spirits to experience 
a work of God in my life. We'll say it that way. That's probably the nicest way to put it. I kept my witness, um, but I probably wasn't in the best heart and mind. And yet, even then, God met me in that and reminded me that even when I'm frustrated, even when I'm anxious, even when I'm angry (laughs) and want to say things I shouldn't say, even in that moment, God shows up and encourages me and reminds me that he's at work even in my life, right? And so it's, it's to be captivated by him. It's to be fascinated by him. Now, many of you, maybe when you were young, your mom and dad may have said something like, maybe they, could, they told you to do something and you spouted back and you said, well, 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 why? Anybody do that? Your mom and dad tell you to do something, you say, well, why, dad? Why, mom? And what did they say to you? Because I told you so, right? Well, one of the cool things that I love about Paul is he doesn't, he doesn't leave us on that cliffhanger. Typically, he tells us what he wants us to do, which is what he does in verse 8. And then he tells us why he wants us to do that, which is the rest of this verse. This is 9 through 15. He tells us exactly why. And he gives us three reasons why we ought to live a life captive to Christ only. Look in verse 9. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So what Paul is saying here, we live captive to Christ because we are filled with him. We live a life captive to Christ because we are filled with him. He says that the whole fullness of deity dwells within Christ and we have been filled in him. You know, one commentator had a pretty cool uh, picture for, for what this looks like. He says, I want you to picture yourself on, uh, on the beach, looking out in the ocean. And he said, I want you to picture having a, a mason jar in your hand. And he said, I want you to dip that mason jar into the water. And, and he says, as you do that, the, wa- the water is going to rush into that mason jar. And what you're going to see is that it's going to fill up. In the same way, for us to be filled with God doesn't mean that we have all that God is within us, but like that mason jar, as we come to him, we dip that mason jar into the water and we have all the components of God, and yet at the same time, we cannot contain God any more than that jar can contain the full ocean. It's pretty, pretty cool imagery. And yet at the same time, as we, again, we come to him and we seek to be filled with him, We are filled with the fullness of God. In fact, Paul would even pray that for the church in Ephesus. He says, man, I I hope that you would experience the fullness of God, experience the full measure of who God is in your life. That when you place your faith and your trust in Jesus, I don't know if you knew this or not, but you were literally from head to toe filled with his very presence. We are filled in him. We live a captive life because we are filled with him. Here are some implications of being filled with God's spirit. It means that we have him as our, our source of wisdom and power. Isn't that cool? That you have the fullness of God's wisdom and power living within you via his spirit. It means that he guides us into all truth. So if you're standing at the crossroads of what to do, all we need to do is just to seek God. We take that mason jar, we go to God, knowing that we're filled with him. We say, God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? And he will give us an answer. He gives us a wisdom into all truth. He convicts us of our sin. He leads us to confess and he draws us back to himself via his spirit. That's an implication of being filled with him. 
He provides us with gifts to serve him and to others. We've talked about that a lot, right? This idea that as I place my faith and trust in Christ, this great exchange, he gives me his spirit, not just so that we have his spirit, but so that we can serve him and that we can serve other people. It means to be filled with him. In addition, by his spirit within us, he helps us in our weakness, right? Maybe you have, have ever experienced the point where God uses your weakness for his glory. It's because it's in our weakness not in our strengths where God more often than not gets the glory because, well, I can't brag on myself if God used me in my weakness, right? Keeps us humble. At the same time, did you know that it's by his spirit living within us that when we don't know what to pray, God intercedes for us on our behalf. He knows exactly what you need, when you need it. So you don't have to come to him worried about what you say or how you say it. You simply come to him knowing that he intercedes for your needs even when you don't know what to pray, the spirit within us is what transforms us from the inside out. And also it is the spirit within us that seals us for all of eternity. Man, isn't that great that you and I who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we've received God's spirit and so we are sealed for all of eternity. It means that there's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can say to break that seal. We are sealed. I mentioned this last, a couple weeks ago. I said, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a cheap Ziploc bag that you get from Walmart, right? Like this is an eternal divine seal that God places on you that says, hey, no matter what happens in your life, no matter your circumstances, you are sealed. I did say this last week that no matter what's going on in our life, because our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it's all gonna be okay. That's the, that's the theme, that's the idea that Paul is getting at here by being filled in Christ. So that's the first thing. The second reason why we live a life captive to Christ alone is not only because we're filled in him, but because we are united to him. We are united to him. This speaks of our union with Christ. And verses 11 through 12, here's what Paul writes. He says, in him, meaning in Christ, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in his baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, to understand what Paul's saying here in verses 11 through 12, you really got to go to the Old Testament. You got to go back to the Old Testament. See, if you've ever wanted to know what God has God requires of you, um, you, you find that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. And it's going to shed light on what Paul's saying here in this passage. In Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, Moses gives us exactly what God would require of you and me as his followers. Speaking to the Israelites right before they enter the land, the promised land, here's what Moses says in verse 12. He says, and now Israel, what is it that the Lord requires of you, but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all of his ways, to love him and to serve him, the Lord your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. See, this is what the Lord requires of us. He says that, that, that our requirement to him in the covenant that you and I have between God and, um, and us, our agreement with him is that we would fear him, we would walk in his ways, and that we would love and serve him with all that we are and all that we have. That's, that's our commitment to the Lord as his followers. Now, Moses says, okay, in order to do this, here's what you have to do. This is where it gets tricky. 
In verse 10, or I'm sorry, in chapter 10, verse 6, he says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, I know that there's a handful of stubborn folks in this room. So you might want to pay a little bit closer attention to this. So what Moses says is that if you want to love the Lord, if you want to serve him, if you want to fear him, if you want to give all that you have and all that you are to him, then you have to circumcise your heart. Now, what the whole Old Testament teaches us is that you can't do that. The entirety of the Old Testament is teaching you a story. It is a story of how you and I cannot circumcise our heart. In fact, we can't fear God. We can't love and serve him with all that we have and all that we are apart from him doing the work in us. And so that's where we get to the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, here's what the Lord has to say. He says, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I love the way the NLT translates this. It says, I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender and responsive heart. What Ezekiel is describing here is what Paul is saying that we experience in the New Testament. And he's also shedding light on what you and I are experiencing in this Colossian passage. See, Paul is saying that in the salvation moment, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, he cracks open your chest, reaches in, and he takes out your heart. He puts it on the table and he replaces it with a new heart that is responsive to him that beats for him, that enables you by his spirit to fear his name, to love him, and to serve him with all that you have and all that you are. Wow, it's pretty crazy. Now, maybe you've experienced this in your life. Maybe you can recall, I don't know, I don't know how many of you could, could say this, but how many of you could say that you remember what you were like before Christ? Handful of you? Okay, you remember what you were like before Christ. So, so maybe you can relate to this. You know, before Christ, maybe there was a particular sin or there was something in your life that, that, that you were tangled up in and that, that man, it, 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 you were enslaved to. And then the moment that you accepted Christ, all of a sudden, you were free from that sin. Suddenly that sin didn't taste as good or maybe it just didn't last as long as it once did, you, you started to realize the emptiness of that, of that sin. That's what, that's what Paul is describing here when he's talking about this idea of a captive life, that when we give our lives over to Christ, when we follow him, we receive his spirit, and by receiving his spirit, we receive a new heart that beats for him so that The sin in my life no longer tastes as good. It no longer lasts as long. It's no longer as satisfying as it once was because deep within, God is transforming our heart to be more like his. You know, it's this really cool thing that happens in that salvation moment. Um, You know, all throughout the Bible, there's this theme of marriage and, and Ephesians 5 speaks to this, that, that when we accept Christ, what, what we're really doing is that we are marrying ourselves to him. 
That's that union that we're talking about. It's this picture of marriage. It's a beautiful picture of marriage that describes our union with Christ. So, so think about it this way. Just like in marriage, we now take on his name. We're given a new identity. We now share a home with him. Means our home is no longer in this world, but it's in a new world, a perfect world, an eternal world, right? So now we, we take on his name, we take on his new identity, we take on his home. While we once lived for ourselves, now we're living for him, which means he's aligning our lives with him, our direction with his, and our will for our lives with his. It means that we're no longer to live a life where we're performing for God, trying to seek his his pleasure or trying to seek his favor, but rather we have it because of what he has done for us in Christ on the cross. Wow. It means that we live in light of his favor rather than to earn his favor. It's this beautiful picture again of marriage. And I never get tired of Romans 8, chapter 37 through 39. It's this beautiful picture. I want you to hear the marriage-like language that Paul uses in this text. He says that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See, when we say yes to him, we are saying yes to an eternal marriage that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you think, no matter what happens in your life, you can never be separated from his love because he has given you his spirit as a seal of that marriage covenant that you make with him. Friends come and go, market rises and falls, opinions of us constantly change, but nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. Now the third reason that why we live captive to Christ is because in him we are free from our enemy. In Christ, we have been given freedom from our enemy. Try as he might, the enemy is completely and totally defeated. Can you imagine? Can you imagine attempting, uh, uh, trying to attempt, uh, attempting something, knowing that no matter how hard you try, you're unsuccessful? Well, that's the enemy. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how persistent he is, no matter how good his arguments are, He's always defeated. That's the promise that you and I have. And in fact, that's what Paul is saying in verses 13 through 15. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he says that God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He says, this he set aside, our debt. He set aside our debt, nailing it to the cross He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Wow, the imagery here. See, Paul, he reminds us that before Christ, we were dead. To be dead means that we were dead, that we were hopeless, that we had uh, nothing to offer ourselves or, or quite frankly, anyone else. Spiritually, we were dead and completely and totally hopeless. But then in Christ, by faith, We have been made alive. We were buried with Christ in his death. We were raised to new life. And the implications of this are absolutely paramount. In Christ, Paul says that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are completely forgiven. 
This means that everything, and I mean every single sin committed has been forgiven in Christ. It's been buried with him in his death. And listen, this is not like a time capsule kind of thing, right? I think sometimes we live our lives, uh, we know that Christ has forgiven us of our sin. We know that he's canceled our debt. And yet we kind of live our lives as though there's this time capsule that has been buried with Christ in his death that at some point God's gonna go back into that dark cave. He's gonna dig up this time capsule. He's gonna open it all up and go, oh, but look at all this stuff that you did. It's not the way God works. In Christ, he has canceled our debt, past, present, future, all of it. It's like the old hymn says, not in part, not my, my sin, not in part, but the whole. It is well with my soul. It beautifully says, my sin, not in part, but the whole. I love that part because it's a constant reminder that, that Christ didn't pay for just part of my sin. He paid for all of it. He paid for all of your sin. And what the enemy wants to do in our hearts and minds is that he wants to take us back to that moment to remind us of how we don't measure up, to remind us of that poor decision, to remind us of that bad relationship, also that we would be distracted and rather than live for Christ, we would live captive to the enemy when Paul is saying, no, 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 no. We have to put an end to that. We need to see to it that nobody takes us captive by empty deceit, lies, lies from the enemy, or by silly philosophies that the world has to offer. He says we got to live captive to him. That means mind, heart, and hands, that we ought to be captive to Christ. I love what one author writes of this. He says that Christ has forgiven all of your sins he has utterly wiped out all damning evidence of broken laws and com commandments, which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. So again, when Christ said, it is finished, he's saying that all striving, all performing, all working for the approval of God is finished. For in Christ, we have the approval and pleasure of God. The record of debt that stood against us canceled forever. For in Christ, we have been set free. We've been set free. This is the great paradox of the Christian life, that as we give our lives to being captive to Christ, as we live in captivity to him and to him alone, that we actually experience true and lasting freedom. That's the great paradox of the Christian faith, that in captivity is actually freedom. And it's not some kind of freedom that somebody can come in and take away. But it's a freedom that lasts, that nobody can touch. See, in Christ, we have been buried with him in his death. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. We've walked out of an empty grave, never to return again, alive and free. For a captive life is alive and it is free. And it is available to you and it's available to me. And for the Christians in the room, here's what Paul would say. I think Paul would say, hey, listen, so see to it that nobody takes you captive, that nobody takes you away from the freedom that you have in Christ. And to the unchristian in the room, he would say, hey, listen, you know, I think, I think there's so much that this world has to offer for you. So many things. It promises freedom, but all of its promises overpromise and under-deliver. Under in fact, it will never satisfy you. And so come to me. Take that mason jar and come to me and watch how I fill you 
Watch how I uh, give my life to you. Watch how I uh, unite with you in that union with you. And watch how I will set you free from your enemies. For those are the reasons why you and I, even as the Christian, pursues a captive life. We've been filled with him. We've been united with him. And we have been set free from our enemies. There's nothing else that can offer that kind of freedom to you than Christ. It's powerful. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. God, thank you that you have called us into a captive life. God, a life that is fascinated by you, that it's attentive to you, that's held captive by you. And yet at the same time, in that same captivity, Father, you have given us freedom. Freedom to walk in newness of life. Freedom to experience life the way that you would have us to experience life. Father, as we come to you, we find rest. As we come to you, we find life everlasting. Father, I pray that as we do that, you would satisfy our souls. That, Father, while the world may see our lives and think, golly, how how in the world would they live captive to this old 2,000 year tradition but really Father it's in all of that that we find true freedom and I pray that Father they'd be hungry for that in our lives Father we thank you for Jesus it's in his name that we pray Amen Amen